Hello and welcome to this podcast. I'm Gillian Doherty. I'm the Chief Executive of the Data Lab and I'm delighted you've joined us for the first in our series of podcasts coming from DataFest 2019. I hope you enjoy it. It's fascinating and thoroughly interesting. Thank you. So it's an absolute pleasure to be here uh, with Chris Wiley. Uh, this time last year, during DataFest, the Cambridge Analytica Facebook scandal, shall we call it, broke. Uh, and you were right at the heart of that. And it's a real pleasure that a year on, you're here opening Data Summit. Yeah, exa- in, exactly, exactly a year on. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I remember it well. So I'm sure it's been some year for you, and we'll, we'll come to that in a second. But it would just be really good to, to understand the time when you felt that actually you need to speak up. Yeah. Um, so it's, um, I think, you know, I get asked this, what was the, the moment that you decided to come out? And it's actually, for, at least for me, it was a journey. Um, so when I started at um, what later became Cambridge Analytica, um, it was actually a company, a British company called SCL Group, which was a military contractor working for the Ministry of Defense in the UK and uh, the Pentagon in the United States on research and development um, related to uh, information operations, psychological operations, what you call in the, in, in the military the fifth domain battle space. Um, you know, you've got land, air, sea, outer space, and, and this information or cyber domain, they call, they call it fifth dimension. And we were researching um, essentially how to identify um, and and uh, prevent um, the spread of sort of virulent uh, radical extremist messaging on the internet. Um, Modern security threats um, don't come from what the military calls kinetic weaponry, things that blow up. Uh, A lot of threats now come from non-kinetic weapons or non-kinetic activity. So that's, you know, narratives and culture and cyber and hacking and all that kind of stuff where you don't use bullets or explosives to um, wage combat. Um, And the, the United States and Britain historically had um, underinvested in cyber and information because generals are like boys with toys. They like things that blow up, um, like all men do, I suppose. And, uh, you know, but you can't shoot a tank at the internet. And so we were doing this kind of research. And what happened essentially was one of our clients in the US Air Force was sitting on a plane and happened to sit beside somebody who worked for another guy called Steve Bannon. And they got um, chatting on this plane about, what do you do, what do you do? Because, you know, Americans always talk, uh, you know, we're, we're stuck in coach together, what are we, you know. Um, and at the end of this flight, um, the guy from the Air Force said, uh, look, I can't uh, help you, but uh, let me introduce you to somebody who I think can, because he, their company does great work for us. So. Uh, Steve Bannon got introduced to my boss um, from SCL Group. And so he flew over uh, to meet Steve in New York. Um, and essentially, Steve was um, at the time head of Breitbart, which was um, is a right-wing um, news site. And um, Andrew Breitbart, when he founded it before he died, had, had this sort of vision that politics exists downstream from culture. So if you want to change culture, or rather, if you want to change politics, change culture. And politics will just flow from that. And 
The problem with Breitbart was that it became too niche and became a hate blog for straight white dudes who can't get laid and instead like to attack women and minorities and anybody that's not them. Um, and you know, when you think about what is a culture war, you're, you're, you're fighting war in the domain of culture, so you've got to create an arsenal of tools and weapons. And when you've got, when you think about what a weapon is, you usually have a payload delivery and you've got a targeting system or mechanism, right? So on a missile, you've got a laser that's heat seeking and then an explosive. Um, in, in the cultural context or the informational context, your payload is a cultural narrative or a counter narrative or a rumor or some kind of manipulative or deceptive content. And your targeting system online is an algorithm. And so he looked at what SCL was doing and said, he being Steve Bannon, I want that. But when you're doing research that has military applications, you can't just sell it. Um, you know, you can't just go and buy a missile from BAE Systems. Um, so if you're doing the, if you're if you're working even in the informational or, or 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 cyber context, you can't just go and hire any client you want. So to get around that, Steve then brought on um, a billionaire um, called Robert Mercer, who uh, made all of his money in the 90s by setting up one of the hedge fund, one of the first hedge funds that used algorithms. So he had a PhD in computational linguistics, worked for IBM for years. Really smart guy. Immediately, he made literally made billions on algorithms. So he immediately understood right targeting, data, information architectures, algorithms, data science, like all of this he got instantly. So Steve essentially said, you've got to buy this company because we've got to get this company. So overnight, our company just gets acquired and you know the senior leadership changes, board members change. And so all of a sudden, um, you know, what we were doing in terms of building um, tools for the military and civil agencies to uh, combat, at least in an informational sense or cultural sense, extremism in North Africa or in the Middle East or, you know, wherever, um, all of a sudden was acquired by people who then wanted to use it on voters and treat voters in the same way that you would treat, you know, uh, a, a jihadist recruiter. And what's really important, I think, for people to understand is that in a military context, consent and personal agency are not um, operative factors in your program. Because from the military's perspective, these are people who you can send in a drone and incinerate them with a missile, or you can deceive, manipulate, um, and then exploit the mistakes that you set them up uh, with. Um, And so from the military's perspective, this is a passive This is a passive activity. This is sort of something that you can try out before you send in the drones. Um, But in in an electoral context, um, the the foundations of democracy presume personal agency and free choice. Um, So if you are seeking to deceive and manipulate um, the electorate, right, where 
you know, all of a sudden people exist in these sort of segregated cognitive monocultures where they see one thing and this other group sees something completely different and no one can agree on what's real, um, you have eroded the, the basis of a functioning democracy because people are no longer at least agreeing on what's real. Um, so I saw the company, I, I, I saw them then bring on um, several uh, people who had worked for um, Russian security services and intelligence agencies. Um, the the research team um, was partly based or became partly based in St. Petersburg in Russia, um, where you know data was then being sent to Russian researchers who were also working on Russian state-funded projects on. Um, profiling um, what are called dark triad traits of social media users. So that's narcissism, Machiavellianism, psychopathy, um, in the context of online trolling. So Russia had a team researching online trolling and the psychological precursors of online trolling and how to profile and target that. And the, some of the people who were working on that were also then working on the data that Cambridge Analytica had. Um, and you know, when they then expanded into the United States and went to Facebook and applied to Facebook to then create an app that then harvests all of this data, they submitted forms that Facebook requested, um, and Facebook authorized the application that then harvested all of this data. Um, so, you know, the, the interesting thing about it is that Facebook knew about it. In fact, later hired some of the people Facebook hired some of the people who were involved in this project, right? They authorized the application. Um, and they only seemed to have a problem with it once the media found out about it. Um, when, the, when the CTO was asked, um, you know, wh why did you authorize the application? The response was, well, we didn't read the terms and conditions. Yeah. Um, and so I then leave. The problem was that if you're, if you're, if you're, if your company, you know, and some of these things, they were trying to target these people and um, exacerbate racial biases and, and literally draw out racism from people. Um, you know, they targeted people who were more vulnerable um, because they had more narcissistic tendencies or because they had more neurotic tendencies. And Oftentimes, people sort of criticize people with these traits, but nonetheless, they are vulnerabilities in this circumstance, and so those vulnerabilities um, are being exploited. Those people, so I see a lot of those people as victims, um, and you know they would be sent all kinds of ads online, um, and those would then bring them to uh, you know websites or Facebook groups or pages where they would then. Um, you know, start to encounter people um, who may or may not have been real, who start saying, hey, have you seen this? Check this out. No one's talking about this. Look at this giant thing. Here's this conspiracy. And these are people who are more prone to believing in conspiracies. And once these groups got to, uh, you know, a couple uh, thousand uh, members, um, they would then set up these events. And if only 5 to 10% of people joined these events, um, these live events, you've got 50 to 100 people coming. And so if you set it up in a local county in a, in a, in a, in a coffee shop, right, you've, got, you've flooded this coffee shop. And then all of a sudden, these people who are first, at first living in this digital fantasy, then this becomes their reality because they see um, 
people who look like them, talk like them, don't quote unquote have an agenda, all talking about these things that they see online all the time, but they don't see on CNN, they don't see in the New York Times, and all of a sudden it's because, oh, that's fake news. Yeah. And this is what's real because everybody in my community is talking about it. They don't have an agenda. Those newspapers do. That CNN does. All of they, they have this agenda. They're trying to deceive me. These people are like just patriots like me. And that's called insurgency building. This yeah. is what the military does to undermine and degrade the operational effectiveness and social cohesion in like, you know, a large narcotics operation in Colombia, right? Where you create little cells of people who are talk who where you promote distrust, you, you promote paranoia, and all of a sudden you remove these people from a a a a, a physical social network and they you know then infect themselves. And they then once these once these people, once these little groups all over the place get set up, then those groups are introduced to each other and the groups grow and then develop an organic leadership structure and then you've got movement. And that's what the alt-right was. Um, that's what Steve wanted to do, and he used his company to do that. And so I see, I go, and I see, like, literally a company promoting racism, where they're hiring people who brag about the fact that they work for a hostile foreign state, work for Russian intelligence, where they're harvesting, like, millions and millions and millions of records of people who don't know it, and the company is, a, you know, that authorized that, Facebook, is asleep at the wheel, and in fact, interested in hiring some of the people after the project, you know, to improve the effectiveness of their advertising and quote-unquote engagement rates. Um, and, you know, so I leave, and uh, immediately they threaten to sue me. Facebook uh, also sends me threats. Because um, everybody's, you know, freaking out that, you know, oh, what's this guy going to do? Um, and when you talk to the authorities about it, right, you, you go and you talk to, and it's like, right, okay, so there's this company, it's harvested all this data, it's gone to Russia, there's like spies, and like they're building algorithms to like manipulate like the, you know, Brexit referendum and, and you know, Donald Trump and all that. And, you know, people kind of look at you like you're crazy. So I then went to the States. I talked to people who worked in the White House because I had previously worked on the Obama campaign ages, ages ago. Uh, uh, worked with them. Um, and, um, you know, the response was, well, it's Donald Trump. He's a sh shady mofo. And, of course, he's going to get some slime ball company that's shady as, you know, to, 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 to work for them. But Hillary's going to win. So we don't want to be seen to be interfering with the election because God forbid somebody interferes with the election. Absolutely. And uh, so I'm like, all right, well, fine. It's like, yeah, you probably know what you're doing. Like, so don't do anything after that point. Um, then Donald Trump gets elected. That, well, then Brexit happens, then Donald Trump gets elected. And that's when all of a sudden everyone was like, wait, what is this company? Um, and The Guardian got in touch with me and uh, essentially, you know, wanted to know um, what this company called Aggregate IQ was because they, the forty percent of vote leaves spending uh, went through, at least declared official spending, went through this company Aggregate IQ, which was this random company that was registered in a house on an island on the west coast of Canada. So if you think, hmm, bit odds, forty percent of vote leaves spending goes to an island on the west coast of Canada to a house. Um, it's doesn't it, the website only has a phone number 
and she's never worked in politics before. There's no record of this company existing. Um, they Googled the phone number, and it was also a phone number for the, quote, SCL Canada office, this British military contractor. And all of a sudden, they're going, wait, so there's a military contractor that has a Canada office, and it's an island. And then, so they then go and talk to some people, and they go, oh, yeah, you need to talk to this guy, Chris Wiley. So they get in touch with me, and I go, yes, it is a subsidiary of Cambridge Analytica. And all of a sudden, the Guardian's like, oh, my God, wait, so it's also Trump's firm. And I'm like, yeah, and they took, like, all this data, and they do really unethical and illegal things with it. And they say, okay, so wait, so a company that is committing crimes um, in the United States is also one of the biggest players in Brexit. And I'm like, yeah. Um, And so that's when I hand over a bunch of documents to them. I then re-engage with the authorities, go to the information commissioner's office, um, and then spend a year before the story came out giving time to the ICO and some of the authorities to investigate what happened. And The Guardian, um, at the time, had published a couple stories on CA, and they got sued or threatened to be sued from lots of different tech companies and various interests in it. Um, and so we brought on the New York Times because we needed a fail-safe mechanism in case they got, in case there's an injunction in the UK, where because in the United States you've got the First Amendment, so you can't get an injunction on. It's really hard to get an injunction. Um, so the New York Times came on board, and when they came on board, they're like, "All right, so you've got all these emails, you've got like, you know, server logs, all all this stuff. Um, it still sounds crazy, <laughs> like." Like, girls got the receipts, but the receipts are for something cray-cray, right? And so um, we brought on um, Channel 4 to do an undercover operation because I said, you know, like, literally, if you just go and talk to them, they'll just tell you. They don't don't really hide it. They think it's funny. They think it's funny that you can manipulate an election. Um, And so they got um, all these executives from the company bragging about how they use hackers, hire prostitutes, like, you name it, create disinformation. Um, and then, quote, inject it into the bloodstream of the internet, like a virus. Um, And so we had all of that. We had it on tape. We had documents, emails. Um, We had two papers validating it. Um, And when Facebook found out that this story was coming, they then threatened to um, report me to the authorities uh, the FBI for cyber crimes because they go, this is you've committed crimes on our company. How dare you? Da 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 da. Same day, same lawyer send a letter to the Guardian, saying none of this is true and we're going to sue you for defamation. So same lawyer, same 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 day. This is all true and therefore we're going to defend ourselves and report you to the police and da da da. And to the newspaper, we're going to sue you for defamation because it's all lies. And not thinking that I might go over to the Guardian and say, hey. Did you get a letter from Facebook? Yeah. Do you want to share notes? Yeah. Okay. Oh, look, they're saying one thing to you and one thing to me. Um, you know, and they then um, demanded that I hand over all the evidence that I had given to the police and the authorities. And, I, and my lawyers were like, hell no, because he's a witness to an investigation. You're now threatening a witness to an investigation. And if he gave uh, copies of what he's given to the authorities, he is interfering with a police investigation. So F the F off. And so instead, they decided to ban me. Um, And so I became like the first person 
like to be banned from Facebook. You know, they don't ban child pornographers, but they do ban me. Um, and uh, when when they were asked, um, you know, at, at Parliament when the CTO came and testified, why is it that you knowingly lied to the Guardian and threatened defamation and threatened journalists over something that you fully knew was true. Um, And the response was, we just thought that's the done thing in Britain, that you threatened journalists. Said with a straight face. Like, that's the arrogance of this company. Um, And then the whole thing blew up. I then went and testified to every committee that you can think of, every agency with three letters that you can think of. Um, And, you know, we're now sitting a week out potentially from hard Brexit, nothing's really happened in this country, right? Even though um, vote leave uh, broke the law, they committed the largest infraction um, of campaign finance law in British history. They used a company that is associated with Russian intelligence that stole data, leave EU, uh, was regularly meeting with the Russian embassy, and some of the donors took um, you know, deals uh, worth millions in shares of Russian diamond companies during Brexit. And yet we're sitting here a week out, right? And this is, if this, if all of this happened in Zimbabwe, the British government would be saying, you need to have a new election because there is so much impropriety happening that we don't accept the result. But when it comes to Britain, we're somehow like so up our own ass that it's like, of course we should have Brexit because it's the will of the people. Well, it's like, yes, but there was systemic fraud through and through and through everywhere you look. Have you? And this is why it's like, for me, it's been an education in institutional failure. So I was going to ask, we're we're a year down, we're a week from potentially hard Brexit. Yeah. Have you been surprised at either what has happened in that year or what has not happened in that year? Um, I mean, I guess a bit of both. Um, The intransigence of Facebook and their unwillingness to accept any culpability. Uh, it was surprising because you kind of think in the weight of evidence that people kind of just put up their hands and go, all right, we fucked up and we're going to do something about it. But th- at every turn, they try to obfuscate, hide, um, you know, they fire people internally who are trying to speak out. They literally hired last year when all this was coming out, they hired, um, you know, a, a, a PR firm and a private intelligence firm to seed fake fake news about people who are criticizing Facebook and associate them with a grand Jewish conspiracy with George Soros, right? They literally hired a firm to create fake news about people who were criticizing their company and associate them with George Soros in this weird anti-Semitic slur. Um, like this is the you know so that was surprising. I, I I would not have expected a company with that many lawyers and of that size to respond in a way like a you know a mobster would um, smear people and intimidate people, uh, lie about what they've been doing. Um, so that was surprising. Um, I think the other thing that's surprising is how unprepared our authorities are for cybercrime. Um, because, you know, the question that I get asked all the time is, okay, where did the crime happen? Like, as if it's like there's a guy in the closet with a server and he's like 
type pushing buttons on the server and then that's the crime. It's like, well, you know, scaled networked computing doesn't work that way. You can have server, you can have servers all calculating a little bit of something in like five different jurisdictions. You can have people in several jurisdictions all working on the same data set on servers that are all over the world. And so that became the problem because it's like, how do you establish jurisdictionality? Because the law assumes that when a crime happens, it happens in one place at one time. And then that's how all of the law works in terms of gathering evidence and then and then prosecuting. Um, so that was really surprising uh, to you know you kind of assume that like there's some it's like in the movies right? there's like okay there's something that happens and like you go to the authorities and there's some guy in a room with a team and they've got a plan like they know what's what to do and actually. I got asked more often than not from both British and American authorities, what do you think we should be investigating? And it's like, but you're, I'm not, I'm not the FBI, I'm not the, you know, FTC, I'm not the NCA, I'm not whatever. Don't, like, don't you know what you should be investigating? Like, I mean, like, I don't, I'm not a police officer. Um, and so that was really surprising. And I think, you know, I realized how easy it would be to commit cybercrime. Uh, you just have to just put a server somewhere else and done, done. Like the police don't know what to do then. It's like that simple. So that is a big challenge. And, and I think the prolification of data and algorithms and AI and IoT and connected devices yeah. is just going to exasperate that challenge. So yeah. I guess, you know, You've been right in the heart of this for several years, obviously, yeah. the last year, very, very much in the public eye. Yeah. What do you think as either individuals? Yeah. Firstly, individuals, what should we do? Yeah. And then secondly, how do we get around that challenge of regulation, legislation, jurisdictions? Yeah. And I, I, think, I think, first of all, um, you know, to understand that these are architectures and they're not services. And I, that sounds sort of very sort of ethereal and theoretical, but it's actually really important to our understanding that we often talk about these websites as if you're, you click the terms and conditions and it provides you a service without thinking that actually you're at almost every moment of your life is captured by one of these sites. And you actually live a lot of your life through these sites. And it is a cyber infrastructure. And a lot of your life now is mediated by these infrastructures. You socialize online, you post pictures online, you apply for jobs online, you work online, um, you get directions online, you get a car online, everything happens online, right? You are inside of this thing. And the reason why that's really important, I think, for people to understand is that if you start understanding that the internet is an architecture and that these websites are an architecture, very subtly, the way we start thinking about how we should regulate the problem changes. Because if you think about a building, for example, right? An architect or an engineer of a building is not allowed to say, because of my user experience concept, I do not want to have fire exits. And all I'm going to do is put some terms and conditions at the entrance of that building. And when people walk in, um, th they have accepted that there aren't fire exits in this building. Right? And also, I'm going to now, after they walk in, lock the door so they can't leave because I want to watch them. Um, and then they're, they're there. They're trapped there forever. Um, that would be unlawful. And you, there's no contract that you can sign to, allow, to live in a building that does not comply with the building code. 
Same with airplanes, same with medicine, same with food, right? You can't, you can't create poisonous food and then just have terms and conditions that say these strawberries might poison you, right? It's, it's unlawful, right? And so for every other sort of aspect of our lives, we have regulators in place that are looking at safety standards. That, and, and it's really important to understand that the impact of, of social media is a safety issue. When you look at what happened in, for example, Myanmar, where the United Nations came out and said that ethnic cleansing was facilitated by Facebook's products because there was widespread disinformation and um, hate propaganda against Rohingya Muslims on their site. They didn't do anything about it because they didn't hire anybody who spoke Burmese. They were happy to exploit the country for resources, but not happy to actually invest in a single person that spoke the local language and ethnic cleansing happened. Same in Sri Lanka, when the Sri Lankan government um, identified all kinds of accounts that were spreading hate propaganda about Muslims in their country, where people were being run out of their towns, the houses were being burned down, people were being assaulted and killed, they sent a letter to Facebook asking uh, for these accounts to be taken down, and they didn't read it because it was in Sinhalese. So, the, so real people can get hurt, when you look at more broadly the effects on our mental well-being, mental health, eating disorders, body image issues, when you look at even the fact that when you have a population or at least a sliver of that population and that's large enough to influence or sway a vote, like the presidential election, where the result of that is children of undocumented migrants get put in literally cages where where the result is children in cages, right, because of voters who have been manipulated, that's a safety issue. There is a whole lot of harm that can happen from these, these, these sites. And more broadly, like, imagine when you look, you know, because you, you mentioned the 5G and Internet of Things, like, imagine, and these are already in existence, these technology, 5G is in China already. Right? It's already there. Right? It, it, Internet of Things, once we get 5G, Internet of Things is everywhere. Your toothbrush will order a dentist appointments. Like, and for the first time in human history, we will be sitting in environments that think about us. We'll be inside of something that's thinking about us. So you sit in your living room, and your living room thinks about you, and recommends things to you, and talks to you, and engages you and seeks to influence your behavior because it gets rewarded if you buy stuff. Your bathroom, your children's toys, when you go to work, when you get into your car, your car talks to the road and the road talks to your office. And it might make a decision about whether you should be on time or not based on your subscription package, right? Where you no longer have the ability to even be on time to work unless you subscribe to the premium on time package. So and can, can we that, regulate it? So, so it's really important for people to understand that we are building an architecture that humanity has never engaged with before, which is a, 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 where it can see us, it can follow us, it thinks about us, it seeks to reward behavior it likes, it seeks to punish behavior it doesn't like, where it can see us and we can't see it. And for me, that's, that's scary because it's like a phantom spirit or a phantom god or a phantom devil that we're creating where we live in it. And once we're in it, it's very hard to leave. So if we're talking about how to approach the problem from a, a regulatory perspective, when you, you know, people don't have a choice to use these architectures, these products, you know, like you, you, can't, you can't get a job anymore if you say, because I don't want 
to be manipulated and because I want to protect my privacy rights, I'm not going to use the big four tech companies' services. It's like half the internet. You can't get a job if you refuse to use Google or Facebook or Instagram you know, or LinkedIn, right? People won't socialize with you. Right? You can't even, how are you, going to, how are you going to find out where you're supposed to go? How are you going to chat with people? Society has moved online. And so the notion that people have a free choice to opt, quote unquote, opt in to these terms and conditions is bullshit. It's not a free choice. You have to do it in the same way that you can't say, because I don't want to be electrocuted, I'm not going to use electricity. That's not a fair choice on somebody. We wouldn't say if we walked into a building, oh, people are getting electrocuted left, right, and center. But, you know, they were told at the door that they might be electrocuted, and it was their, their choice to. They should have known better. If they didn't want to be electrocuted, don't go into the building. We would never say that. That's ridiculous. So why is it that for things that mediate our life as much as electricity, uh, that we, we, we don't stop and say, hey, this is actually a utility, right? This is in the same way that electricity is, is a utility, in the same way that water is a utility, in, in the same way that we have uh, special classes of regulation for our roads and public highways for things that you don't really have a choice but to use, right? A, a water company can't just turn off your water because they don't like you. They say, you know what, we're not going to renew our contract uh, you know, go after yourself and die of thirst, right? That's unlawful. A water company can't do that because it's a utility. Same with an electrical company. It's a utility. So when you look at these companies and how people engage with them, because they don't have a, a substantive choice to not engage, they're engaging in the same way that they engage with electricity or water. Um, it's just they're now engaging with data and cyber architecture. And so I think the first thing that we need to start thinking about is do we need a new class of utility, which are internet or digital utilities, and classify them that way? And that doesn't mean that the companies can, you know, electric companies make money, you know, water companies make money, train services make money, right? The, you can have companies that make money and are profitable, but nonetheless have a higher standard of care for people because those consumers don't really have a choice. And so I think that's the first step is to re-understand that these are architectures, these are, this is environmental design, and that we need to stop thinking about them as normal private companies with services. Um, and once we start down that road, the conversation changes a lot. And, and secondly, to understand that our society really depends on getting this right. Um, you know, a congressman, um, who I won't name, but he, uh, he was very active in the civil rights movement in the United States in the, in, the, in the 60s and 70s. And I had a meeting with him, and he was like, I really just don't get what the big deal is. This is just ads. It's just, an ad. it's just ads. And I said to him, I don't understand what the big deal is. It's just a seat on a bus. It's just where you sit in the movie theater, or it's the entrance that you walk into a building, or which bench you sit on in a park. And the point that I was trying to make is that when you look at the history of the civil rights movement, it was all about something actually fundamentally quite simple, which was sharing space. Desegregation literally means that a black person and a white person can coexist in the same place in a, in a similar fashion, whether it's in a school or movie theater or what have you. And what 
these architectures are doing is resegregating society. Um, because when you when you think when you when you use the parlance of ad targeting, right? You, we we you know we talk about segmentation, right? Different consumer segments that get targeted with different kinds of information, right? But there's another word for that. It's segregation, and rather, it's not physical segregation, but it is as potent because it's cognitive segregation where when you go online, which is now where the majority of people get their information and socialize, they are seeing a different aspect of the world than other people. And you get the same impact as physical segregation because the point of physical segregation is not literal separation. It's so that you have two different Americas or two different Germanys or two different wherever, Britons. Um, and that's really scary because when you look at history, when people start separating themselves and start experiencing their same country in totally different fashions, that's where a lot of harm and injustice can start. And we're looking at you know, the, the sort of very early stages, particularly in the United States, of what happens when you resegregate society. It's just it's happening online. And so I think we really have to understand that this is not a niche issue. Um, there's a lot of real harm that can come from this, um, and it needs to be a priority. People, on average, check their phones 150 times a day. Um, they get their information, they socialize, they apply for jobs, they work using your phone, using the internet, using social media sites, using all these kinds of you know, uh, products online. Um, much more so than when you know they go to the doctor or they go on a plane or they go you know whatever like every multiple times an hour people are interfacing with this and when you look at every other profession um whether it's a doctor or an accountant lawyer nurse what have you there are professional conduct standards where you have to engage in an ethical way with people and what you build has to be safe and yet when it comes to when the top job title at tech companies is engineer and architect, right? So for physical architects and physical engineers, there are standards, building standards, and ethical standards that they have to comply with. But when it, but when it comes to online, there's nothing. And so I think also really in, engaging with the profession itself and saying, guys or girls, we need to do better and we need to have mandatory ethical standards for the profession where the consequences in the same way that if you act unethically as a lawyer or a doctor or a teacher, you get banned from the profession, you can't act as a lawyer or doctor or what have you, and actually start you know, creating consequences for people who build unethical things. It's, this is a really interesting point, and we've been involved in a lot of debates about should data scientists, for example, take the Hippocratic Oath, mm. uh, like doctors do, at first do no harm. Yeah. Uh, so, I think absolutely. So we've covered a little bit around the regulation side and think about these, uh, they're not services, they're architectures, think about it as utilities, absolute regulation, think about the professional uh, categorisation and approval and almost the kite mark mm. uh, and I guess the, the other aspect is if you don't act ethically and morally and, and uphold this profession. There needs to be skin in the game. There's there needs to be skin in the game for you know pr professionals who, who you know are building things that they know aren't going to be used in an ethical way, where where they are empowered to tell their bosses and their companies no. So, 
so they can call out. Because I guess uh, some of, uh, maybe not the, the, the Cambridge Analytica Facebook thing, there are certainly some uses of data where there are unintended consequences. And I guess when those become apparent, in much the same way as drug manufacturer over the years, you know, mm. uh, the, the, they didn't set out to do harm, but, but yeah. the consequence was that. Yeah. And therefore, there's a a point in time and a safe space yeah. for when that becomes uh, obvious and, and I guess those involved are become aware, there's a safe way to say, stop, yeah. just stop. There's some unintended consequences that we've now found out. We need to stop this and we need to investigate so that we can become better yeah. because ultimately we can't stop this tidal wave, this tidal wave of technology. When, when, when you look at standards for medicine, for example, right, you know, when you look at you know, people, you know, the scientists, you know, who were involved in the thalidomide scandal, you know, back in, I think it was the 60s, where, you know, I don't think that a lot of the, the doctors and researchers were setting out to make a drug that harms children and, and, and babies, um, you know, with deformed arms and stuff like that. They were trying to create something that helps with morning sickness. They just didn't do a good enough job at really paying attention to what are the other impacts that this drug could have. And from that case evolved, uh, you know, medicine standards and research standards uh, to make sure that from that point on, you're going to have to prove to a much higher standard that this is safe, right? It might be useful, but it has to be safe. Um, and it's the same with airlines. Every time there's a crash, there's all kinds of forensic analysis, and then they add new standards, right? And so you look at the ev evolution of airline safety standards around the world, and now there are really high thresholds. If you, if you have a new wing design, if you have a new electronics system, you have to prove to the authority, and the onus is on you, the manufacturer, you have to prove to the authority that this is safe. When we look at even recently with um, you know Facebook's reaction to the fact that you know their platform was used to stream a massacre in a mosque and you know they they come out and they say you know our platform's really big and this is a really hard problem for us to tackle and therein lies the problem is that they the, the sort of underlying assumption is we should be allowed to make these big things that are unwieldy where we don't actually know how to police it ourselves and and harm comes from it, but we should still be allowed to do it. And 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 that the reason why we're not doing anything about it is because it's a really hard problem. You know what's really hard? Cancer research. You know what's really hard? Designing airplanes. But 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 we would never accept, a, you know, a, a drug manufacturer going, yeah, our drug sometimes kills people, but it's really hard. Or our airplanes sometimes crash, but it's really hard. Right? We expect that they prove first. That if they want to make money off of a technology that they developed, they have to prove that it's safe. And what we're seeing now with social media is what happens when you have an industry that does not have to prove at the onset that what it's building is safe and is not going to be misused for extremist recruiting, for filming mass, you know, mass murders, for spreading the, you know, hate propaganda that results in ethnic cleansing, or manipulating voters that results in a tyrannical regime. Do you think it's possible now to do that? You know, I've had a lot of discussion, the, the horse is bolted, the, the genie's out the bottle, you know, it's almost too late. Do you think that we can do it now? You think we can retrospectively ensure that level well, we've of... we've got to start trying. Because the alternative is we just don't do anything about it. 
Um, and so, yeah, it's an insidious problem. It's like there's a lot of catch-22s. Everywhere you look, it's, there's a catch-22. Why? Because it's environmental design. We're literally creating a new environment for humans to interact in. That's really complicated. So, like, I'm not saying that it's easy um, or that, you know, if we implement regulations that there's not going to be unforeseen consequences of those regulations or it's going to inhibit something or maybe... But nonetheless, what's happening right now is unacceptable. And time and time again, all Facebook does, all these big tech companies, all they do is just go hold up their hands and go, oh, yet again, we're sorry, we screwed up, but you know what? Our platforms are really big and it's really complicated. So you know what? If people die, it's kind of not our fault because it's really big and complicated. Do, do you think they should? And, 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 and that should not be an excuse. No. There is no, here's the thing, right? What liability does Facebook have for this murder? The, the, the mass murder in, 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 in New Zealand? Probably none, right? What liability did they have for the ethnic cleansing that was happening in Myanmar? Probably none, or in Sri Lanka, or all over the place, right? So they don't have any skin in the game. They can go and exploit people and create systems that are unsafe, make money off of it, and when they screw up, there's no consequence. And until we start adding on consequences, right, you know, seatbelts, seatbelts in cars, really good example of this, where insurance companies in the United States got tired of paying for the mangled bodies of people in car crashes because it was affecting their bottom line. And so they actually fought with the car industry to lobby Congress to make seatbelts mandatory in cars. And the auto industry said, this is going to scare people. You know, it's going to make people think, it's going, people aren't going to buy cars anymore because they're going to think it's dangerous. It's, you know, they're awkward, they're uncomfortable, they, they're ugly. It's going to inhibit innovation because, you know, it's the same with, with airbags. It's going to inhibit innovation. We're going to have to figure out how to fit all this stuff into the car. Like, you know, and, and lastly, it's up to the consumer. If the consumer wants airbags. If the consumer wants seatbelts. They should choose that, right? And quote unquote, pay extra, you know, in, in parentheses. Um, and it was because the insurance company actually had to pay for it. Somebody had to pay for it. And so they lobbied harder and they got, uh, you know, it's probably the only thing that insurance companies have actually done that's good, um, you know, is they, they lobbied Congress for better safety standards in cars. But what we see in technology right now is that there's no financial incentive for companies at the moment to do better. And so one of the things that we really need to start thinking about is like, how is it that we can create a market incentive for these companies where they'll, where they'll feel some pain, right? When they do harm on society, they'll feel some pain. And that pain has to be money, has to be their share value, right? And so. It, it, may, it might even be that we require, you know, it, mandatory insurance, you know, for data breaches or misuse of platforms where the, where the insurance companies have to start paying people who are victims of unsafe products and then start lobbying, the, the, you know, we, that we won't insure you if, you if you keep doing this, you know, or regulatory penalties or what have you. You know, th this is not something for me to, to you know, decide unilaterally what we should be doing. It's a conversation that we all need to be involved in. But like, there's got to be some kind of incentive, uh, to, you know, that we that we apply to these companies to to start acting more ethically. And so we're going to have to wrap it up, which is a real shame because I think I could talk to you all day. As individuals, 
as you say, is the, the internet, the use of digital products, it, you know, it's, it, it's on the hierarchy of needs now. You know, you can't deny yourself water, electricity, and, and to function in society, it's really, really difficult to do unless you go completely off-grid. While we're figuring out the regulatory stuff, while we're figuring out how do you ensure that there's consequences when uh, there are bad actors doing things that they shouldn't, as individuals, uh, as many of people who will listen to this podcast, what can you do? What can we do as, as individuals who, as you say, often can't deny access to these mm. products because they mm. help you function? Yeah. They help you communicate. They help you function in society. What can we do? Um, so this is, this is a question I get a lot, and I don't like answering it because um, this is exactly the question that a lot of tech companies want us to be asking, because what it does is it individualizes the problem, right? Again, the onus is placed on you, the user or consumer, to do something about something that you actually have no control over, because you aren't the architect, you aren't the designer, you aren't the engineer. And so the question for me is always, is like, we, we have buildings all over our city that are collapsing or electrocuting people. How can we protect ourselves against like unsafe wiring? And it's like, well, you, you can't, nor should you have or bear the responsibility to do something about it. I think if people want to do something about it, it's scream at their representatives. Why is it that this is allowed to happen? You know, and again, people, we're sitting one week out from Brexit, potentially, right? Hard Brexit, potentially. No one knows what's going to happen. And yet, like, this is the product of systemic cheating that was facilitated by unlawful use of data, unlawful unlawful spending, and a, a company, Facebook, totally asleep at the wheel, not, not enforcing its platform. Um, and so, you know, we, we, there are so many consequences uh, to, to these platforms that it's unfair, I think, to say, what can you do about it? It's because, frankly, it's what should these companies be doing about it? What should the engineers at Facebook be doing about this? Or at Google, or wherever, right? What should they be doing about this? What should our regulators be doing about this? Or should we have a regulator? We don't even have, we don't have a regulator for social media. Should we have one? What should our parliaments be doing to create laws that you know, empower a regulator to actually start inspecting these companies to make sure that, that, that they're safe? So, you know, it, it, uh, unfortunately, not to sort of be the bearer of bad news, but you can't really do anything about it because it's not your fault and it's not your responsibility. And these systems are far too big, pervasive, and complex for you to do something about it. We need social action in order to fix this. So that's the ask. And is that what's in your future? You've obviously left that domain of data and politics and, and influence and, and now at H&M. Yeah. What's next for you? Well, um, so I do, what, something that people actually don't know uh, about me is that my, um, my postgraduate research was in using AI for fashion trend forecasting. And I got into working for a military contractor by accident because they were looking for cultural trend forecasting. Um, and there's this, I was one of the niche people that was looking at AI and culture. Um, so I've gone back into uh, fashion, and H&M is a really cool company because it's 
the only fashion company that I know of, and actually one of the only Fortune 500 companies that I know of that has an ethical AI unit. They literally have people full-time inspecting and making sure that the technologies that we build are in the service of humanity um, and that have, and, and the, the overall projects and policies that I'm working on is called Data for Good. So I'm using AI, I spent a year now talking about how AI is dangerous and how data is dangerous, just like electricity. But we don't, but, but no one would say, let's get rid of electricity because it's dangerous. We'd say, how do we create better standards and positive uses of electricity? And so what I'm working on with H&M is, you know, helping the company figure out ways that we can reduce waste um, and reduce our carbon footprint, um, better understanding of you know body shapes and sizes, so that our clothing fits better, so that when girls go into our stores, they don't they that they feel they that they always leave feeling beautiful, right? Um, and better understanding you know the diversity of the world and making sure that we are more culturally sensitive and relevant to to people. Um, these are all really positive and healthy ways that we can use artificial intelligence. It's not about putting people out of work. It's not about manipulating people. It's about finding ways where we can identify problems that a piece of AI could probably help with and, and, and building that. Um, and so, doing that ethically. And doing it ethically, starting with ethics. Ethics and, and data in the service of humanity. Um, you know, there's no point. We, there's no point in AI. There's no point in optimization. There's no point in disruption if the end product of that is not in the service of people, right? We should not become slaves to machines. We should not become slaves to the owners of those machines. So we should be building machines where it helps people, and they should always be the starting point and the end point of everything that we're doing. And so H&M was you know, one of the, 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 the few companies that I've met that when they, when they approached me and said, hey, are you interested in this project, they didn't talk about NDAs. They didn't talk about, you know, um, hey, could we do what Cambridge Analytica did, but in a way that you know, people won't find out? Or, you know, it, it was the question that I got from the CEO is, is it even possible for us as a company to use AI and data in an ethical way? That was the first question I got asked. Can, is it even possible? I want to talk to you because I want to know, is this possible? Because we are you know, investing a lot in AI and I don't want to create something that's bad. And I said, of course it is in the same way that we can use electricity in positive ways, even though it's dangerous. Um, and that really sold it to me. And so I'm working now at a fashion company, um, building AI systems. But what's really cool is that our starting point is ethics and our endpoint is ethics. Fantastic. So data for good. Yeah. Think about ethics. People at the heart, the start, the middle, and the end. Yeah. It's been a pleasure to welcome you to Scotland, to DataFest. I hope you've had a great time. I have. I, I love Edinburgh. I love Scotland. My family, are way back when, is originally from Scotland. So, uh, yeah, so. We do get around us, Scots, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it's been a real pleasure. We wish you all the best at H&M. We wish you all the best using data for good, ethically, morally, and to make people and girls feel beautiful about themselves. Absolutely. So thank you very much. Cheers.